Hey folks, Randy Newberg here from beautiful Bozeman, Montana on this wonderful summer day. Um, I, I want to thank you for tuning in, but today we have an absolute pleasure, a guest that I could have never dreamed we would be so fortunate to have on our podcast. Uh, if you are as big of a fan of the history of conservation, the history of hunting in North America, how the how hunters have a role in society. If you're as big a fan of that as I am, you know who Shane Mahoney is. In fact, you probably, if you're like me, consume anything that is written with Shane's name on it. <laughs> um, so with that, uh, we are very fortunate. And Shane is here with me in Bozeman. He was here on other projects. And uh, I I almost, I don't know if I begged, but I certainly, <laughs> I certainly asked as polite as possible if Shane would join me in this uh, Randy Newberg Unfiltered podcast. So, Shane, thanks so much. I, I, I can't thank you enough for being here. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I'm delighted to do it. So, uh, great. Looking forward to our discussions. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you and I have been to, well, Monday night we were at the same thing. I got to sit down and listen to you give your presentation again i've heard many of your presentations and and i'm just going to say this to the audience if you've not heard shane talk you're going to some people have a tv face and a radio voice you definitely have the voice shane that when you are giving your presentation your delivery has everybody sitting there like on the edge of their seat like oh what what's the next word and i don't know if that's practiced or if that's just natural or uh, it's certainly not practiced i never ever had any training of any kind in in this uh, a lot of people ask me about that and um uh, uh one is it's hard for one to judge oneself but i think if there's any explanation for it assuming it's true, which it may or may not be, <laughs> uh, but uh, if there is any explanation, I think it was growing up in a, in a very rural society where um, storytelling, uh, music, recitation, these were all uh, very fundamental things to our culture in Newfoundland. Um, my mother was Irish, and so she brought, uh, she brought all of that influence to bear of course and as people say for the irish uh language and talking are a dance <laughs> uh, so uh, i don't know if any of that happens i think the i think perhaps the most important thing and the reason why people perhaps react positively uh to what i say is that i i speak about things that matter a great deal to me and i speak about things that i have worked uh very hard uh, to try and understand, and um, it has become um, uh, a bit of a trend, I think, or a bit of a fashion for people in many different walks of life, including uh, elected officials, uh, to treat conservation and the issues of hunting as though they are uh, rather simplistic and rather easy to understand. And... Um, my experience in these endeavors convinces me that uh, conservation is probably the most complicated, complex uh, human endeavor that exists. And the oldest. Well, if not the oldest, certainly one of our oldest. Well, certainly hunting is. Uh, the notion of conservation and the idea that uh, 
you know, we should attempt to live within some kind of sustainable framework for uh, the earth and for our own existence. This is, uh, this is in fact relatively recent. I mean, indigenous peoples and native peoples had deeply religious and spiritual engagements with nature and with the animals that they hunted. But as a kind of an institutional intellectual idea, conservation is uh, really quite recent. And uh, if we go back to the time of the beginning of agriculture 10,000 years ago, up until it took us until the 20th century, really, uh, to develop this idea that uh, civilization and progress would actually benefit from us learning to live within nature from the time of agriculture. Up until that time, the whole drive of humanity was to separate ourselves from the dependencies and the vagaries of relying on nature and to grow our food and make it easier for us to sort of separate ourselves. And uh, so this idea that, no, we should attempt to live within the natural systems of the planet um, and to, you know, have a, a sense of stewardship towards the wild others that occupy this uh, spinning globe, this is, a, this is quite a recent phenomenon. And in fact, it's, um, I call it the last act of American genius because um, the idea uh, really gained its, its, its great weight and moment in this country. Uh, it's not that European uh, nations were not thinking of some similar things or other parts of the world. But the real forcefulness of this idea really gained momentum here in this country, uh, a very young country, um, and a country that has proven over its short history uh, capable of throwing up a great many geniuses. Um, and I believe that this idea of conservation, which is now viewed as a, as a standard the world over, as a, as a metric of progress and of civilization, mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, the inspiration and the creation of that idea and the articulation of it and the building of the institutions that have allowed us to ensure that conservation really works, um, this was a profound change in human thinking. Yeah. And the United States of America... Um, figured really, really prominently in this. And unfortunately, um, most American citizens are not aware of this incredible legacy. Uh, and that, but, uh, that gets me to the question of, you're from Newfoundland, which I've heard you at times say is not part of Canada. <laughs> but uh, Well, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Uh, and before I ask you this next question, the 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 audience is going to hear at times me refer to Giannis. Giannis uh, Patelis is our production coordinator for this podcast. You guys have heard him on some of our other podcasts. He's with the Zero Point Zero crew. Also works on the Meat Eater podcast. So if you hear the third voice here, it is Giannis. Um, but. Back to that point, Shane, one thing that strikes me as I've read what you do uh, or what you write and, and what listened to you speak many times, you, you're from a country north of us in the United States, but you are one of, the, one of the more informed people about our conservation history in the United States, which gets back to what you just said of it seems like a lot of people in this country are not aware, mm -hmm. ignorant, whatever term we want to use of that conservation history. 
How did you come about? Is it was it just your profession? Was it your personal interest? Was it your life experiences that caused you to say this is something that fits into the discussion I want to have? Well, um, there's a lot in that question, <laughs> okay. uh, so I'll try and, put, and uh, answer the parts you feel like. <laughs> um, it is a little odd that uh, somebody coming from a quite a distant place and really on the periphery of uh, the North American continent, really, uh, that I have come to have so many fortunate encounters and engagements in discussions in the United States and across Canada and now around the world, I guess. Um, but, you know, it's, it's uh, a combination of fate, luck, endeavor, as uh, most things in life are. Um, uh, people heard me speak at a, some venues in Canada, invited me to come to events in the United States, um, speaking at the Governor's Symposium in 1993 in Green Bay, Wisconsin, I believe, was probably the first time I had really thrown out my ideas about hunting and about conservation before American audiences. But the 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 conservation uh, mission if you wish to call it that um or vocation uh, has been with me all my life um there was never any doubt whatsoever in my mind even from the age of a small boy of what i would do i've been in love with animals all my life um they are incredibly important to me um, and uh, there was never any doubt in in anyone's mind, in my family, my parents, or otherwise, of what I would do. I was encouraged to be a lawyer and a doctor and all the usual things, uh, but uh, my path was clear. I believe it's the greatest uh, vocation in the world to work for those wild creatures, um, and uh, so once I had the opportunity uh, to start to share these views... That became combined with a deep passion for history. Um, my daughter is a historian. I have always had a great interest in world history, and I have read very deeply about history uh, in, uh, in many facets of it. And American history, of course, is amongst the most fascinating that one can read. I mean, really? Well, this country is a, you know, you are a, you, you are a, a rarity. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the achievements that the country has made in such a short period of time, um, the, uh, the contributions that the intellectual and otherwise that this country have made or has made, uh, you know, they're, they're just absolutely enormous and they just don't seem to end. Um, and um, the capacities for... Um, overcoming obstacles of ingenuity, of, of uh, individual authorship of events. Um, this is, uh, these, are, these are trademarks of uh, Americanism that I very much admire. And uh, so uh, reading the history of this country was a very natural thing. I had done a fair bit of that even previously. And, um, you know... Uh, so combining the interest in history with a deep commitment to conservation and knowing what the United States had done and being familiar with people like Roosevelt and Grinnell and others from earlier readings as a graduate student and so on, uh, it was sort of uh, a natural fit. And the other thing is that, um, you know, uh, this is the heartland of hunting. I mean, the United States of America 
is beyond any doubt the most significant nation in the world with respect to this, our oldest and first try at life. Um, and uh, therefore, it was a great privilege for me uh, to be able to come here and to understand through experience the people, the stories, um, the way this, this tradition was viewed, the importance with which it was held, um, the notion of, of, uh, of, of sharing, of passing it on. And so, uh, you know, the, it, was a, it was a viral thing in, uh, in an older sense of the term. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you spoke in one place, people met you, you met colleagues, and they helped you, and people were interested in the ideas because um, some of them were born, of course, of very deep reflection. And in my career as a wildlife scientist, uh, you know, I spent inordinate amounts of time with wild creatures. Um, as a boy, that's all I did. But as a man, uh, I was fortunate enough to have that profession. And I wasn't like a lot of people. When I say I live with them, I mean I live with them. And, um, you know, I, I came to know wildlife in ways that not that many people come to know them. I've done things with them that not a lot of people have done. I have you know, helped female caribou give birth, that were having breached births. I mean, I've, I've been in the bear dens, as many people have. I've been charged and chased up trees and nearly killed by moose. <laughs> you know, I've done a lot of things, jumped out of helicopters to capture animals and stuff like this. And um, so I had, um, I have a very, I think, personal relationship with wildlife um, that, not everybody, even in my profession, has. I, I do believe that. And um, I do feel compelled to work for them. And I think there was a huge receptivity to those ideas in the United States, and not just amongst the hunting public, but obviously uh, largely amongst the hunting public. Um, and what I, what I really enjoyed was discovering that... Um, while the hunting community is made up of a lot of different individuals with a lot of different attitudes and motivations, mm-hmm. there were a lot of people in this country, and there are a lot of people in this country amongst hunters who I believe really pursue the deep spiritual uh, engagements with animals during the hunt that really is what gives rise to the conservation ethic in hunters and makes them care about these animals. Yeah. Um, it is an incredibly profound experience. I don't have to tell you. Um, but, you know, the uh, I've long held the view that uh, when an individual uh, willfully takes the life of a sentient creature, uh, that from that day onward they have no other moral choice than to become a champion for them. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I, I think, and I tell this story many times when I give presentations, is I'm 14 years old in northern Minnesota, mm. and I took for granted that we'd lived on venison and rough grass. Sure. And, and I remember the first time I shot a white-tailed deer. It was a doe. And uh, unfortunately, I'd hit it a little far back, and it took a second shot to... Mm to dispatch it and for, oh, like you said from that day forward I did 
I have never looked at that meal on my plate mm-hmm. with the same, I guess, lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. Now that meal on my plate represents the life of something else that gave its life for me right. to, to live. To, yeah. and, and it represents so many things. It represents to me the fact that I come from a long line of hunters. It represents the productivity of the landscape. Mm-hmm. It represents the complex relationships that I'm just one very small part of. And mm. so when you say that instantly, my mind goes back to looking at this white tail doe and it, it's still hard to talk about at times. Sure. It, it, you see this bright sparkly eyed animal and eventually it becomes this opaque bluish green color in their eyes. And that's the first time as a human, uh, as a, as a person, I, I understood what, life and death meant and it was profound enough for me to say just what you said this planet is going to be a better place if i if i have anything to say about it this place is going to be better for the next year and the next year and hopefully for the next hunter and the next hunter and the next citizen yeah i mean i think the uh we we you know we throw around language and terms pretty easily but a simple statement like the taking of life, which is what we do, uh, freights, you know, really profound realizations. And, um, you know, it is my personal view um, that they taught us to be human. Um, none of the great truths uh, that we have contemplated, um, none of the great spiritual ideas that... Um, we eventually codified, um, you know, none of them um, lie outside of our relationship with animals. Even the most complicated of notions, religious uh, ideals, such as ideas of resurrection or transubstantiation or things of this nature, you know, the circle of life was teaching us that as hunters 40,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago. We could see that uh, where you know a, gr- a field of grass would grow more luxuriant the more it was grazed, and this was a miracle when you think about it. Um, you know, you kill an animal and you eviscerate it, and its blood and its intestines and the contents of its stomach, uh, you know, some of its fur, you know, bleed into the ground, and you walk past that site the next year. And you can see the difference in the vegetation, maybe a fluorescence of flowers that sprang up there or something of this nature. The idea that death could, you know, turn into life and turn into even a different form of life, this was not something that uh, needed to be codified by great religious teachers. It was taught to us by nature long before. Um, And uh, the whole uh, notion that um, we had to take them in order for us to survive. Um, and the fact that we could come to reflect on that is, I really think, what eventually set in our minds the notion that we were different. Um, it's not like we looked in the mirror and said we were different. It was, <laughs> no. it was this process you're talking about. I think so. And I think this is where the, the, the early sculpture and the parietal or cave art and the rock art... Um, I think this is where a lot of that came from. 
we knew we were like them in many, many ways. And we knew they had, in some cases, capacities that far exceeded our own. Um, but we also knew that we had to kill them um, in order to survive. And the talents that we developed, of course, out of that became lasting you know, hallmarks of, of humanity, what we were able to do. That was honed on the stone of hunting. It was honed on the interactions, uh, our abilities to observe them, to understand when they were threatening and when they were not, when they would give birth and when they would breed and when they would show up in different ranges. And all of these kinds of um, wonderful mysteries we entered and solved to the best uh, of our abilities through the exercise of the hunt. And uh, I, I am entirely convinced that without the wild others, um, we would never have been able to have contemplated the notion of humanness. Yeah. And uh, this experience you had with the, with the deer, you know, is very, I mean, it's, it's timeless, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, it, it, it happened uh, 500,000 years ago, and it happened 40,000 years ago, and it... And it happens uh, to this day, and that's that's why, um, you know, people struggle with this issue of of, of why we hunt and what it is that uh, that ultimately brings us there. Um, but having operated as a as an animal behaviorist and as a, a research biologist for a long time, I spent a great deal of time with animals without a rifle. Um, and I spent time carrying a rifle. And the really big difference between being in nature and not hunting versus being in nature and hunting is that it is only in the hunt that all of the senses fire at their maximum. When, you know, as Ortega said, you become the alert man or the alert woman. Wind direction means more. Uh... Uh, the ruffling of leaves means more. The track of an animal spore means more. Uh, the likelihood of being able to see an imprint in wet ground means more. The cry of a raven means more. The slanting of light means more. Um, and while we often struggle to define why it is that we actually hunt, it's in fact because neurologically and physiologically, emotionally and intellectually, we are finally firing on all pistons doing that thing that made us successful for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And we, we feel this completeness in this exercise, but at the same time, we have that experience that that once amazing creature will never be again. Right. It's uh, it's, it's it's of our doing. Yes. And of our responsibility. And and often I, I get asked that question a lot. Obviously, when you have a TV show and write a lot, uh, people will question your your motives for hunting. And I don't necessarily try to sway somebody to say, "Oh, you need to be a hunter." No, of um, I, I listen. Uh, I'm I'm thankful if they're at least concerned about wildlife and landscapes, whether they choose to hunt or not. And I, 
the best way I'm able to try to explain to them is I break it into two kind of two paths you go down life that you either want to participate or you want to spectate. Mm. Um, and maybe that's not the right way to say, but it's the way Randy Newberg tries to to explain to people who who ask my motivations. And when you talk about all these sensory experiences, how this is so much more profound, so much more uh, connected when you hunt versus if you just watch. And, and I tell them, if you go to the football game and watch the football game, you get one experience. But the depth of the understanding of what it means to be in that game, the strategy, the feeling, the, the joys, the, the disappointments, uh, is, is two different perspectives. And so your, and I try to tell them your interaction with the natural world is going to be different than my interaction with the natural world. Because in the natural world, I am there for the sake of gaining food. I am there because I don't know how else to say it other than I am a hunter. I've come from a lineage of hunters as, as they maybe have, but they're not expressing it in the activity that we I all am. have. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you are on this planet, you have some hunter DNA in your, in your body. Um, and so it's, it's hard to explain that to somebody other than to try, ask them, put yourself in a situation of something you participate in, whereas others only spectate and think about how this is different to you as a participant than it is for that other person who's a spectator. And in the world of hunting, uh, there, there's nothing I know of that makes me more whole, more fulfilled, more aware than the act of hunting. And I can't explain it. I, I can't, through osmosis, somehow give that feeling to somebody else unless they go and actually participate in some degree. Maybe, um, but um, I think we can make uh, pretty compelling arguments that, um, first of all, that the past is still really relevant. Um, and this is a, a part of our past that when we revisit it, we, we have these deep emotional pleasures, really. And people are afraid to talk about that because... Of course, that raises the issue, how can it be pleasant to kill things? Right. But hunting is not about killing things. You know, when we kill things, we have hunted, that is true. But we have also hunted when we don't kill things. Um, and the past uh, remains uh, eternally relevant and immediate for us if we think about it. Um, you know, why, uh, why in today's world where we can light buildings with the flip of a switch, uh, is it the case that uh, everywhere in the world you go, um, people have candles? Why is it that people still invest? It's a billion, multi-billion dollar business uh, producing candles. Uh, we don't need to have them, uh, but we use them for all kinds of purposes, religious ceremony, for romantic dinners, for uh, setting a kind of ambience. Uh, you know, uh, is, that, is, the, is, is that not evidence that the, the past is still providing us with something that's deeply sensual and deeply satisfying to us? Why is it that, um, 
why is it that people in Texas and Alabama, you know, have fireplaces in their houses? It's surely not for warmth. Um, you know, this, this, this presentation of the open flame, uh, you know, attracts everyone. I mean, it's, uh, and it may be an outside fire pit, but I mean, we want to bring that indoors. We, we want to experience it. We don't need to, but we want to. Why do we have all of our sleeping quarters uh, uh, on upper levels in our houses? It's because at one time we sought safety and elevation, of course, away from predators. There's no other reason why the main architecture of buildings and sleeping quarters is that way anymore. We don't have to have it, but it's generally true. Uh, why is it that if you go to a restaurant and the lights are bright, they charge you $5 for your steak, and if you go to one that has rock walls and wooden beams and uh, the lighting is low and you have candles on the table, they charge you 25 <laughs> uh, You know, Why is it that um, you know, if you have people over to your house for, for a dinner and uh, you know, you're cooking something in your kitchen, Everybody is, you know, just talking and maybe sitting in another room. But if you have a barbecue, everybody has to come out, stand around it and look down at as though there's some miracle happening. Yeah. You know, we carry these traces with us. All our phobias are ancient. They all come from the past. Nobody, there's no real modern phobia for airplanes or cars, which kill all kinds of us. But we still fear spiders and snakes and heights and storms and big carnivores and these kinds of things. So even when we're only being passive with respect to the past, it matters. And the senses that we developed out of that existence remain and they resonate still with us. And that's why we take such pleasure in those things. The hunt, of course, is the culmination. Uh, not only did we, you know, have extraordinary experiences in the hunt, but the success of the hunt and the honing of the talents that made us successful in the hunt were what eventually made us successful as a as an animal species. Um, it's like technology, you know. You hear people all all the time saying, "Oh, you know, kids with their with their little phones and games and and things of this nature." And my goodness, won't it be great if we could, you know, get them off that and we it's it's really quite a ridiculous notion frankly because when we broke the first stone to dispatch or skin the first animal we began a love affair and a dependency on technology that is unending we will never get rid of it the only choice we have is to find a way to make it work within those traditions but the silly notion, the wishful thinking uh, of parents or others that we're going to take these little, little, little humans, um, you know, and wean them off technology, is is just absolutely totally absurd. It, it's just part of who we are. And watching you at your last presentation, you made a statement. You said there would not be football if there weren't hunters. And I looked around the room, and a lot of people were like, where in the hell is he going with this one? Yeah. But by the time you made that point in two minutes, everybody was nodding their head, and you could almost see them saying, I get it now. Yeah. That, that is part of how, that, that connects to something I, I find relevant or tangible today with something that seems obscure or, or intangible from my past. It's absolutely and, true. And, and it was, it was just a, 
Yeah. We would now like to hear that anecdote. That's right. It's quite interesting. Well, you know, um, the talents that we developed as hunters, the physical talents that we developed, and the neurological ones and the intellectual ones, you know, play out in different forms today. So if we think of athletics, and in this particular case, we think about American football, and, um, you know, the ball comes back to the quarterback and he steps back and he looks across what essentially is a grassy plain. And he looks at this chaotic movement of these animals moving this way and that way. He immediately has to sense, you know, the power of his own body, the stance that he must take, the wind direction, the distance and the movement and the interception point of that one specific beast that he has to hit. And all of that came from a hunting experience. If we had been leaf eaters, as I said, none of that talent would have existed. We would have had other talents, but we would not have had those. It is the exact spear-throwing, rock-throwing, bringing down the game. Uh, and where did that talent come from? It didn't just happen so that we could play football. Right. We, 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 and when we exercise, we know from medical research that of course we have this extraordinarily good feeling. The endorphins flow when we have this kind of great sense of things. But why did we develop those talents in the first place that when we now exercise them, we feel so good about? It's because we had those engagements, both as prey, avoiding those predators that wanted to eat us, and also developing those incredible talents that we developed for hunting. I mean, when you know, so many comments were made by U.S. cavalry members and mountain men and other explorers who came into contact with uh, the Native American peoples um, in this country and in Canada. And, you know, one of the amazing things was, that, you know, men said it was impossible for a man to empty his revolver as fast as a Native American could shoot arrows from his bow. Really? Yes. <laughs> And when you think of uh, a human being being able to ride on a horse with no saddle, uh, with just one rawhide uh, strap tied around the lower jaw of that beast at full gallop, holding on with just one foot over its back and that rawhide braced underneath the upper arm and underneath the neck of that animal to fire arrows faster than a man could shoot a revolver. You get some idea of the extraordinary physical capacities that we developed. Today, it is possible for some people to become boastful about their hunting. But I can assure you that the people who hunted 40,000 years ago and 30,000 years ago and 20,000 years ago and the people who hunted on these lands of America and Canada and in other parts of the world as, as a way of life had talents and capacities for hunting that we can only dream about. Wow. And these are, there are such extraordinary capacities that human beings develop to hunt. It is, it is, it is almost beyond belief that we could kill mammoth and mastodon and we had to kill them with handheld spears 
Right. We, we, even then, we didn't have enough strength to drive them as throwing spears through those animals. We had to close at close quarters to be able to kill those animals. Think of the trust that had to develop between human <laughs> beings when we were doing that. Where does it come from? A lot of that came from those circumstances where if one individual failed to do what he should do, there's no doubt that no one would have come back from that experience whatsoever. The, the initial concept of teamwork. Yeah, and and, and the, you know, the capacities, the, the, the Kung Bushman, I've I seen a beautiful black and white film of a hunt by um, three of those individuals in the Kalahari uh, film many, many, many years ago. Um, and uh, it's a kudu hunt, and they hit it with their little tiny arrows that they use that are poison-tipped, and um, they... Uh, they they had an expression. Um, the longest a man could run, a human being could run in that hot sun, was about eight hours or so. And um, but they had an expression that in the first three to four hours they tracked the kudu, but for the next four hours they were the kudu, and they never had to look for sign. They just ran. And they would find him. And in this film, um, this animal finally um, stands first looking at them. It can go no further. And they stop. And if anyone wants an illustration of what hunting ought to be, uh, this is it. These three hunters who have capacities for tracking that really to this day, it's just it's 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 hardly believable when you see what they can do. Yeah, um, they stop and they speak in whispers, and this animal finally goes down on its knees, and then its hind legs go underneath it, so it's it's sort of on its brisket there, right. still with its head up, still alert, and finally one of the men steps forward and he throws a spear a short spear that goes in behind the ribs and into the lungs and the pleural cavity. And the animal reacts, of course, and the animal dies. But the expression on those men's faces, the, you know, the quiet uh, zone that they enter. Now, they have tracked this animal for hours, and, you know, they have, uh, they've been on this mission, but, and they're obviously pleased at some level that they've been successful, that they've taken this animal. It means a lot of meat, and they will bring it back, of course, and use it all. But the reaction to the animal's death is this quiet, respectful, contemplative moment. Even the way they talk, they stand back at a distance and let the animal die. They speak quietly about it. They make comments about it, and so on and so forth. And uh, this is why, uh, you know, this extraordinary exuberance that is sometimes shown by people at the end of a hunt is very foreign to me personally. Right. Um, and it certainly was very foreign to them. It was an extraordinarily moving passage, and it showed that just like your experience you related with the with the deer, um, there was this thankfulness. There was this recognition that because of you, I live. 
because of your death I live. And these were the these were the messages that had to be resonating amongst human beings, Cro-Magnon, and you know, forty thousand years ago, when human beings would enter these very deep caves in France, Spain, and other parts of Europe and the Levant. Um, in some cases, lowering themselves on hide ropes. In some cases, wading or swimming across underground rivers, flowing through these caves, carrying only tiny little lights made of cotton grass or animal fat in a shell or a stone, uh, and making their way, in some cases, miles into the earth before deciding to create these cathedrals of art. Um, you know, and you look at all that art, and I visited these sites, I've devoured this particular body of knowledge because it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, there are no landscapes. There are no trees. The only thing that's there are animals. And outside of that, there are human handprints, and there are what we call ethereomorphs, which are forms that are part animal, part human, again signifying there was no way to separate the two. They were, this is what these sorcerers and so on mean in my estimation. Um, and when there are human beings, just like in the rock art, they're painted like stick men. Right. There's no detail. There's no real profile. But the animals, they're perfect. The hair, the eyes, the horns, the stance, the body movement, the galloping. I mean, there was just a paper published in Science, one of the most prestigious scientific journals in the world, that showed that the most art capturing the gallop of animals has been wrong, even to this day, in terms of how it represents the galloping animal. But the parietal art of France and Spain is dead on. That's amazing. Yeah. That's how good they were at observing and recreating these animals. Interesting. There's a good, uh, I think, if you want to look at that, Warner Herzog did a documentary that's called, oh, it's about those caves in France. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a piece in there where they really talk about that movement that's shown in, in, in exactly what you're just talking yeah. about. Um, yeah. If the name of the documentary comes to me, I'll remember it. Qu- it's it's really a it's a it's it's a deeply religious experience is the only way to describe seeing the see, seeing this it's uh, it's just absolutely unbelievable and you have to remember this is forty thousand years right. ago you know we talk about the Greeks having an incredible civilization two thousand three thousand this is forty thousand years ago and in some cases those caves were used as artistic theaters for twenty thousand years. That's just so unbelievable. When we we live in a society today where if someone measures <laughs> something within a week, you think they're a long term long term thinker. But to hear you talk about this, Shane, makes me feel so connected to that because I'm a hunter. Of course. And I, as you were saying, it it brought me back to a pronghorn hunt that I I did an archery pronghorn hunt in Arizona, and me and my camera guy said, well. 
let's go find a place. It's, it's the heat of the day. Maybe we'll find something that's going to water in this little seep that uh, in northern Arizona on the Mogollon Rim country, there are seeps and springs and, and not as much so, or, or more so than what you see down in the flat desert of Phoenix in Tucson area. And I said, that point right there looks like a really good place. Let's go sit there. And so we walked there and camera guy sets up the tripod. I'm, I'm in hunting mode. I'm looking, I'm searching. And he taps me on the shoulder. He's behind me. And here is a broadhead of the absolute most perfect condition you could imagine. And I'm like, wow, I'm not the first guy who came to this point and said, this looks like a place that an antelope or maybe a, a deer or whatever would travel. And he sat there and he filtered through. He, he then got in this mode of, I wonder what else is here. He found pottery. Oh, my he, God. We found so many things. And I'm not smart enough to know how old that stuff is, if it was 200 years old or if it's 1,000 years old or whatever. But to me, that was one of those times as a hunter where I, I stopped hunting. When he started showing me this stuff, I just kind of tried to pull myself back to say, Randy, what? Why did you stand over on that ridge and say that little point right there is is where you should go today? Mm. And how many other hunters thought maybe a thousand years before me had come and done the same thing? And to hear you talk about the caves of France 20, 30, 40,000 years ago, those kind of things connect me today so directly to that. Of course. It, and it, do, it, it, it makes it so I cannot deny who I am and where I came from. It, no. it, it's those kind of connections that just remind me in a busy technology world of today. That, uh, it, it's those kind of experiences as a hunter that just ground me to a point that I don't know that any other activity could get me there. Maybe there is, but it's... It's those experiences as a hunter that are so so important to me and, and so uh, eye opening well, of where we came yeah, from. I mean, it's another it's another dimension, but of course, from an evolutionary point of view, um, it made a real difference. I mean, the the supreme athletes that we see today, the people who have the tremendous speed or the tremendous strength or the tremendous hand eye coordination. You know, when we see the great football player, the the Michael Jordans of the world, uh, you know, the the great sprinters, um, you know, these talents, of course, would have made those individuals uh, quite likely also tremendously advantaged hunters. Right. Um, and so people will say, um, just like the technology thing with children, uh, people will say, um, oh, we pay you know, uh, star athletes, too much money. And I tell them, you've seen nothing yet. As the global economy increases, we will pay uh, superb athletes whatever they want <laughs> because the spectacle of seeing those talents on display, the World Cup, you know, the Super Bowl, right. would, I mean, that that was like watching what we would do in the best of our capacities as hunters. But rather than being entertainment, it made the difference between life and death, the survival of children, the productivity of families, of clans, of communities, and so on and so forth. This was not a, 
So in other words, these talents were not just nice things to have. They made it possible for us to exist. And when we see them expressed now, uh, and of course so much of it is latent, it's like human muscle mass, you can take any human being and through resistance training, you can develop enormous amounts of muscle mass. Obviously the, the genetics, the DNA is there. Right. But until you bring it out, you know, you don't know, you don't see it expressed. Same way with a lot of people who don't hunt. There are lots of people who don't hunt who could quite likely be absolutely brilliant hunters because they have these kind of God-given talents. And remember, too, that uh, while in some cultures women did hunt and participate uh, significantly, um, there were, in, in most cultures, it was primarily dominated by men, uh, in part because of endurance and strength and speed. Um, had nothing to do with intellectual capacity or any of that. But, but women, of course, became extraordinary naturalists because, number one, they had to carry children inside themselves and they were therefore more vulnerable than a free-running male. And they had to be able to judge the intention, the stance, the body language uh, of animals far better than, than males did. And also, when they had children, you know, little ones or babies, it became even more critical. And uh, so, you know, you see a modern reflection of this uh, when Louis Leakey, the famous anthropologist, um, you know, decided to uh, uh, search for individuals uh, to undertake some of the absolute most groundbreaking and arduous field research in the world on gorillas, on chimpanzees, and on orangutans. In every case, he chose a woman to lead that research. And they became the famous, the Diane Fossies right. and so on, yeah. of the world. So um, we also developed great capacities around animals outside of the hunt when we lived amongst animals because of the whole idea of of survival and of protection. But of course, we took that to a completely other level when instead of reading the behavior of the animal to avoid, we read the behavior to capture and to kill. Right. And in some cases, that was to find defenseless young that we could easily kill with a stone or a stick or our hands uh, all the way up to, I mean, look, we hunted the most massive beasts on the <laughs> planet. Amazing. Us little runty humans with our little weak legs and weak arms and, you know, crushable bodies. And we went up against the biggest beasts in the world from the mammoth to the blue whale. Yeah. And we found a way with stone tools, really, originally, and, and then iron and, and so on, uh, to, take, uh, to take the biggest, most fearsome beasts in the world. Spears against lions. I mean, think of this. Right. Who who would even who, who today would uh, conceive of it? Correct. If someone did that today and the result was not good, someone would say, "Well, he deserved well, exactly. it." Exactly. Well, <laughs> teach him. What was he smoking when yeah. he went there? <laughs> so I have a I have a question. If you don't mind, yeah. Now that we don't depend on the the successful hunt for survival, do you feel like that changes or alters the experience of the hunt? Um, I mean, obviously, I think if we 
if we absolutely required the food, then the sense of uh, practical accomplishment at the end of the hunt would have a slightly different dimension. But I don't think it changes at all the experience that we have in it. Because really what we're doing is we are exercising those capacities that we always had. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you're sitting on a park bench and you're feeling pretty good. And then all of a sudden you step up and you walk out into the asphalt court and you start throwing a few hoops. All of a sudden you start to feel better. You are the same human being sitting on the bench as you really are when you throw the hoops. But what is this about these movements, you know? What is it about this hand-eye coordination, about this leaping, about this quick movements, you know? The feints and all of this. What is it? Why should that make us feel good? It makes us feel good because these were the things we exercised. This was when the body and mind were fused together to undertake that thing which made it possible for us to survive, which was hunting. And so I think we we do a couple of things that are different. Um, number one, we have much advanced technologies now compared with the bow and arrow, the, the spear, and so on. Um, and that makes it quite, quite different. Obviously, we don't go hand to hand with bull moose. Um, so th- in, there is a limit there to, yeah. you know, how far we, how far we go. Um, but most of the capacities and the engagements are virtually the same. And very often, it is required that we finally step up very close to an animal, particularly a big animal, and kill it because it's 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 wounded. It may be dying, but we we are we are forced to to finally end its life. And so, even the deep emotional experience, much of it, you know, remains the same. The other thing is, um, I think we in today's world, to some extent, the hunting experience is even more important because we're not doing it all the time. We're leaving a completely different world. And anyone who has spent particularly significant times in the field, alone especially, um, hunting or otherwise, but especially when hunting, um, it's just true that almost no matter what problems you may have, no matter what are the exigencies in your life at the time, you do forget them. Yeah, they do disappear. You do. It's absolutely true, and so when I when I have those experiences or I see those things, my natural inclination, which is the boy in me, uh, always asks why. <laughs> you know, why should that be the case? Yeah. Yet I could be at the most exciting event in the world, uh, 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 in an NBA championship or a, or a World Cup game. And my conscience could still be invaded by a problem I might have. I, you, you owe money or, you know, someone is sick or, uh, you know, you, you have a big pressing business problem or whatever. But in that experience, that is all pushed away. And the mind and the body are in unison. We collectively, mind, body, we have a mission here, so clear, so direct, so unclouded, 
so uncomplicated. And yet, if we don't do pretty much everything right, we know that the other will elude us. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a visiting of another time, of another experience, which was the experience as human beings we had for almost all of our existence. This modern world is a fleeting moment. Right. And Real, so to some extent, I think hunting is even, can even be more intense because of that fact. You know, we're, we're leaving another life to, to enter this. It, it's interesting you say it that way. I've never thought of it that way, but I've felt it and not known how to express it. But I long to go and hunt because I fear that if I lose, if I don't hunt, I'm going to lose a connection to something, hmm. and and I'm going to lose those feelings, those senses, those those uh, I don't know if motivations is the right word, but it, there's something about just the satisfaction and the the excitement but but mostly the comfort of knowing I'm going hunting on Saturday mm-hmm. that I'm going to connect myself back to something that just feels normal feels natural feels but it is normal it's right, same, right? It, 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 but measured by the the constructs of the society I live in today yeah there seems to be this perspective that it's not normal there is but but you know you have to nothing is linear in life um, and no idea or capacity is linear either so at the same time that we were hunting we also developed of course this incredible fascination with them right because we didn't hunt all beasts necessarily um, and as I said even the the members of our communities that didn't hunt became extraordinarily good naturalists, uh, able to read animals at a long distance of their intent and so on. Um, and so we carry within us uh, also a great admiration for and a great attachment to animals. And if you're not exercising the, this dimension of hunting... It is very easy for me to understand why people exercise the other dimension and view the death of the animal, of course, as a, as a, as a dividing point between those two things. Right. Um, you know, I've said to many audiences around the world, um, you give me 25 children of five years of age from 25 different nationalities and languages who have never known me, and who have never known one another. And you, you put them in a room together, and we go back through time, and we remanufacture every one of the greatest toys in existence, from Leonardo's inventions to, to, to any of the great toy makers that uh, you're produced, and so on. And we bring those, including the most modern of contraptions, with tablets and game boards and all the rest of the stuff that... Uh, that as little primates we like to fiddle with um, and let them have at it and they'll all find their little niche, you know. The little Japanese girl will go to something and the little Korean boy will go there and the little American chap will go there and so on and so forth. But then let me go into that room and take a frog out of my pocket and put it on a table 
or let me go into that room and take a Labrador puppy into that room. Now, what do we think is going to happen? <laughs> the toys, Every, yeah. toys are forgotten. Every single one of those children, they may have been raised in a high-rise in Manhattan. They may have been raised in a ghetto in San Paulo. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's not because they've been taught that you should show interest. It's not because they maybe even know the animal. They may not even recognize what the particular animal is. But something will draw them. Take a young baby, put them on in your back garden on a grassy field, and have them on their bellies. They're not even old enough to walk or to kneel up. And let an insect go in front of them and watch how they suddenly are transfixed. Yet the whole world is new to them. The trees, the sky, the fence line, the, the maybe the machinery in the yard. But have that little insect, such as it's crawling along there, crawl in front of them, and they're immediately transfixed. So we do have, as E.O. Wilson has labeled it, we do have this biophilia, we do have this love, this fascination with, and even if it's not a love, we're still fascinated by right. snakes or sharks or whatever it might be. And so, inevitably, these two uh, elements of our experiences with animals will come into conflict. They even come into conflict for the hunter, because just as your expression of sadness over the death of that deer, wasn't that the same conflict? Exactly. So now we have in society people who don't hunt, may not have had any attachment to it. They don't know people whom they respect, you know, who hunt. None of the people in their circle are, are, are hunters. But they still have this other, which came just as anciently to us, is just as natural to us. And yet... The death of the animal, therefore, matters to them too. So why people are so uh, unable to understand or appreciate the anti-hunting sentiment is totally beyond me. I understand it perfectly. Um, and as I've said to many people, I give you two choices. You can have a world where there are people who hunt and there are people who are opposed to hunting uh, because they do not wish to see suffering and death to animals. Now, there can be many layers of that, but let's say that that's the dichotomy. Or you can have a world where there are hunters and the entirety of society, otherwise, all the rest of the people don't give a damn about the death of a wild creature. Now, which world do you really want? Right. That's self-evident. It, 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 it is. To a hunter, that's... Sure. That's, sure it is. So, now, there's all kinds of variations on that, Randy. I mean, it plays out in different ways. Some people are not true about what they really feel and so on. But, you know, the hunting world is made up of different people, too. We all have imperfections. But this is where it comes from. With that background, and that's a... Shane, we, we, I could sit here and talk about this forever because as you're talking about it, it's just pulling memories, pulling sensations, pulling all kinds of feelings to the surface for me. Um, but since time is, is never unlimited for either of us, um, with that background of where hunters have, have come from since time began uh, to where we are today, 
you do a lot of, of speaking and writing uh, and you work on projects that try to make hunting relevant to society today. And I'd be interested in in hearing, and again, the, you will say, oh, Randy, that question has a thousand <laughs> answers that need to be addressed. But I'd be interested to where your your uh, focus is today, what, what projects you're working on. Uh, most of us know about the work that you and a few others did to kind of take the North American model of wildlife conservation. And even though it had been in existence for some time, no one had ever really sat down and wrote and, and said, here are the seven tenets, here's how it works. Um, most of our audience is probably quite familiar with that model. But since that time, you, you're working on a lot of other projects that all seem to fit into this this path of of trying to explain to hunters themselves trying to explain to society where hunting as an activity fits in our world, where those who still participate in that hunting activity, where they fit in society. So what, what, what projects are you, you working on now? Well, first of all, I think, um, um, I'll preface the answer to that, um, as important as I feel hunting is and as important as it is to me and as uh, important as it can be simply as an intellectual discussion about its, its impact, ultimately for me, uh, the driving force of my life um, is about the animals themselves. Um, if someone were to show me that hunting did not have a conservation benefit, um, I would be arguing very different things before the world. Um, and so my ultimate goal is to um, encourage uh, every activity and every human being as much as possible to care for wildlife. And I don't just mean big wildlife like elk or moose or black bear or lions. I mean all wildlife. I mean songbirds and pollinators and insects and snakes and uh, tadpoles. I mean, I, I mean all wildlife. Um, and uh, so I constantly uh, search for ways in which I can link people and nature, but also seek uh, mechanisms whereby I can explain to people that um, in my ethical moral universe, and everyone has their own, um, working for the protection and stewardship um, of these wild others who made us human and who enrich our lives so much is something that I believe ought to be seen as a signal of citizenship. I believe that whether one hunts or doesn't hunt is not the issue there. I think the ultimate issue is that if you call yourself a citizen of the United States of America, uh, then just as Roosevelt uh, explained and argued and trumped and pounded desks over um, uh, as much as uh, today, uh, I think every American citizen has a responsibility to work to protect the natural resources of this country um, and wildlife being the most 
aesthetic and most powerful, most emotive and evocative element. So I search for uh, means by which I can make these things relevant to people. And I also, of course, try then to explain that I do believe, and I think there is abundant evidence to support the belief, that hunting and hunters um, can be and have been and hopefully will continue to be a major force for the conservation of wildlife. In that context, um, I've recently uh, launched a, a very ambitious program uh, to measure for the first time ever uh, the full harvest of uh, wildlife, fish and wildlife, by American and Canadian citizens uh, to actually measure the amount of meat that we harvest each year uh, to give that a, a, a factual, uh, scientifically-based valuation. In other words, how much is it worth financially um, to work with experts in nutrition to uh, explain the contribution that that harvest makes to the overall nutrition of Canadians and Americans uh, to trace the degree to which that food is shared, an ancient tradition of the hunt, of course, um, um, and to then uh, also uh, pose the question, what would happen if all of a sudden that wild harvest was not taking place and we had to replace that with modern industrial-scale agriculture, either of domestic livestock raising or of vegetables and fruit production. Um, and the whole purpose uh, of that, uh, and let me first of all say that even most hunters, I would say perhaps all hunters, <laughs> including this hunter, <clears throat> was completely and are completely unaware of the scale of this. I mean, you go out, you hunt your elk right. or your whatever, and you think about that, but... When you multiply that by 35 to 40 million individuals who every year hunt and or fish in the two countries, you begin to realize that the harvest of natural food of this kind um, is an absolutely gargantuan undertaking and that we are talking about you know, hundreds of millions of pounds uh, of wild food that is gathered every single year by those of us who hunt and fish, we are gathering the most organic food that it is possible to gather. We know the quality of this diet, the high protein, the low fat, and what fat there is, such as in fish oils and so on. It's the good fat for us. Uh, the in, the incredible content of mineral and vitamin that's contained in these wild foods. We know that we are harvesting this incredible resource that is healthy and beneficial to us. Um, and we also know that every one of us shares that harvest with other people. I estimate at a minimum four people, but it's probably a lot more than that. So if you have 40 million people that are doing the harvesting, you have 160 or 200 million who are easily touched by this harvest. And uh, I want people to understand that the world is constantly in search of ways to support human societies and livelihoods in ways that do not damage the natural environment. 
and food production systems can be very damaging. Right, we see it. We, we see it all the time. We have the use of chemicals, the loss of pollinators, the loss of topsoil, the uh, you know the the the, the eutrophication of, of streams and rivers and lakes and all the rest of the things that seem to be a byproduct of the big scale systems. Yet here we have individual citizens who actually pay for the privilege of going onto public and private lands that miraculously, seemingly effortlessly produce this wild food and then we harvest it without leaving any footprint on that natural environment at all. No poisonous intrusion, no destruction of of land or water and we simply harvest in a way that can be renewable for all time as long as that land is left and left to be productive. And I want people to understand that this is no sideshow. This wild harvest is no sideshow. It is, a, it is a fundamental part of the food security of our two nations. It is a natural food supply that any citizen under our North American model, our North American system, has the right, as a right of citizenship, to take part in that harvest if they train themselves and pass the tests and if they operate legally. And they, too, can avail themselves of this incredible bounty that still in this 21st century of technological madness is still made available to us because we still have the land and waters to produce it. My hope with this is that I will take the discussion over wildlife and the discussion over hunting and move it away from the periphery of debates and move it back into the center of discussions in society. I'm hoping by showing the food value of wildlife still to these millions and millions of Americans and Canadians that we can finally get our politicians, our elected officials, to realize that decisions over land and how we will use it needs to include a full evaluation of the productivity of that land as a food source. If tomorrow, in this state or in any other state or any Canadian province, somebody was to go in and say, we are going to rip up all that agricultural land that's producing wheat and corn and potatoes or whatever, fruits, vegetables, whatever, and we're just going to get rid of it and build a mine there, there would be an absolute outcry from everyone. The and capital would be on fire. Absolutely. But we can do that over and over and over again with productive wild land because nobody sees it as a food production source, but it is. Very much. And not just for the hunting and angling, but for fungi gatherers, you know, people who pick wild berries and wild fruits, all of those kinds of things. And, you know, we may think in this uh, extravagant paradise that we live in in Canada and the United States, as we live, as you know, only 2 or 3% of the human population lives, that we are sort of immune from such nasty words as food security. 
But the truth of the matter is the entire globe is preoccupied with the idea of food security and where our food is going to come from. And we're also preoccupied with the quality of our food. So I'm hoping uh, by amassing all of the harvest data from all states and provinces, which we have by virtue of our North American wildlife management system, we have that data, um, to uh, provide the first ever full appraisal um, of this enormous uh, foraging <laughs> undertaking by our citizens um, to combine that value with the other economic benefits that hunting and angling provide and to rural communities and so on and to our state agencies that manage all resources in our state, natural resources, uh, wildlife resources, parks, fish in many cases, um, to combine all of that and to finally say to people, um, to those 80% of Americans and Canadians who support legal hunting, the message is going to be, you're absolutely right to do so. Keep doing it. Um, but go further and realize that that land can be a food production source for you as well. And you might just want to think of one of two things, becoming a hunter or an angler yourself or making friends with somebody who is because the tradition of sharing of wild meat is so deeply embedded in the hunting tradition that you will you will be provided with this food. Um, and the other thing is to say to them, <clears throat> you know, do not be indifferent when you read that another piece of land is being, you know, paved over or uh, being developed. Understand that every single one of those takings means that there is less wild food available to all of us. Um, and to those who are opposed to hunting, I hope that they will uh, reconsider in the light of these uh, new ways of viewing this activity that this really is, for the vast majority of people who hunt, including, by the way, people who so-called trophy hunt, right. the food is used in almost all cases, um, that this is really about taking responsibility for our diets, of utilizing a resource that is sustainable and can be used over and over again. It is about, yes, taking the life of sentient creatures. There is no question about this, a massive responsibility for both state and individual to concede and to, and to bear. There's no doubt about that. But this is not frivolous. This is not unimportant. It is not insignificant. And that every one of those animals that's harvested and eaten has lived a natural, full life that eventually would end, but in this particular case was ended by an act of volition by a human being who then ate this animal, just as we raise turkeys or hogs or cows or anything. So this project is, a, is the largest study of its kind ever conducted anywhere in the world. And, uh, um, you know, as I've said many times, I try and find things that others aren't doing uh, because there's no, we need to add to the good work that uh, conservationists can do and the good work that hunters can do and I think this is really going to force people at all levels regardless of their personal uh, opinion about hunting I think it's going to force them if they have even a, 
a small crack to an open mind uh, to reconsider uh, what they think about hunting because hundreds of millions of pounds of organic food um, is not a joke. Um, arguing that we should keep land productive for wildlife for all kinds of reasons, including the production of food, right. is not a joke. No. And we are all responsible for the death of animals. We go to a restaurant, we order halibut. Who's responsible for the death of that fish? Right. And is the death of that fish different than the death of an elk taken by a hunter? Of course it is. It is, it is not. Right. And I think uh, the hunting community, you know, has allowed, uh, you know, the discussion of hunting to become a sort of peripheral discussion in society. My desire is to bring the discussion of wildlife and the discussion of hunting right back into the middle um, and to have it linked with ideas of food and health, you know, landscape, landscapes, uh, ecosystems, nature. Um, and the more wildlife we have, the more that every interest in it can be entertained, whether you're a photographer or a Right. A hiker, a viewer, bird watcher, a bird watcher yeah. whatever. And I hope that we will one day uh, build a strong enough coalition in our two countries, in Canada and the United States, that we will convince our governments to lead the world uh, in conservation efforts, uh, which is, I think, what the dream of uh, Theodore Roosevelt was, yeah. and uh, which I think... Um, is uh, is really perhaps one of the uh, perhaps one of the most important uh, metrics of what real leadership is. If we can keep the natural world productive and thriving, then we have chances to maintain peace and security and justice. But if we don't, the alternative is clear: human beings will fight over food and over access to scarce resources. Eventually, one way or another. History proves that. It does. So even from the point of view of a coalition, I believe people who are primarily interested in human livelihoods, in peace, in justice, in quality of life, in the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, that, you know, we can form a huge coalition around this... uh, around this effort and already many hunting based organizations and others are stepping up and saying yes we will support this yeah it's listening to you talk about that uh, a friend of mine ted carasotti wrote a book called blood ties and in in one of the later chapters in that book he he talked about his experience of of thinking that uh his his uh, lifestyle choices as regards to how he acquired protein, uh, thinking he wanted to not uh, impact other living beings. Uh, in the, he went, <clears throat> this is quite a while ago, so the, the information is probably somewhat dated, but he went through the process of calculating what the, the fossil footprint was to obtain X amount of protein via hunting a mule deer out his back door in Wyoming 
versus the same amount of high-grade protein through soybeans or through through some other form of commercial agricultural uh, industrial type agricultural production. And what he found was hunting in his backyard was so less impactful to the landscape in total uh, than, and I don't quite recall the numbers, but it, but it was very remarkable, and it and it made me think of of part of this project you're talking about is it's okay to oppose hunting, you know, free country, anyone can do whatever, but when you oppose hunting, oppose fishing, oppose those of us who say we want responsibility for the food on our table, we want to have this more natural uh, connection, we we want to stay uh, in tune with how, how we acquire our food, it's important to us, the quality of the food's important. For those of you who reject that and say, well, I, I want to be a vegan or I want to whatever, and I, I respect that someone wants to do that because I sense they're worried about health issues and such. For me, it, it, someone shouldn't be allowed to just say, I reject that. You should have to be forced to say, and here's my alternative. So taking however many millions of tons of protein hunters and anglers sustainably harvest and, and, and acquire each year, I, I, I'm, I'm interested to see if the, if your project is going to be able to cause those people to say, oh, well, I've thought about the alternative, and I guess we're going to have to displace a lot of wildlife. We're going to have to pollute a lot more streams. We're going to have to put a huge footprint on the landscape to otherwise replace that protein that we as hunters and anglers are harvesting. Is that Do you see that as a, as a possibility to to just at least as you say, if someone has a small crack in an open mind, to force them to think about it in a bigger context? This will be done uh, as part of this project, and we are going to be working with academic institutions to make sure that all of the work is done in a way that uh, you know, will be evidence-based and science-based. And um, people can challenge it, of course, but uh, um, it will be done with scientific rigor. Um, and yes, one of the, the ultimate uh, endpoint. There's two. One is to combine all of the relevant data with respect to hunting and wild harvest and the benefits to society economically and otherwise and bring that together. <clears throat> the other thing is going to be to say, well, okay, let's pretend that tomorrow, you know, we stop it all. You know, we don't hunt and we don't fish. And we, we are going to have to replace that food. You know, after all, we eat it. Right. You know. <laughs> if we're going to live. We yeah, yeah. So it's going to have to come from somewhere. And we are going to do a, a full analysis of what we think it would cost, uh, you know, to replace it by either standard agricultural practices with domestic livestock or with the growing of fruits and vegetables. I, last January... Um, attended a, uh, a meeting in Michigan and uh, um, I spoke there <clears throat> and afterwards I did several radio interviews and in one of the radio interviews um, the uh, the sound board technician uh, in the studio young woman after I finished with the host I went outside and she came outside and I've been talking about these ideas and I posed the question to the host 
um, well, what do you think the world would like, look like if all 7.2 billion of us became uh, vegetarians? Um, then I said, what do you think the United States of America would look like if the 300 million people in this country or whatever the final figure is here now, um, all of a sudden, you know, didn't, didn't, we, we weren't harvesting all this food and we all decided that all we were going to do was to eat vegetable matter. How much land do you think we would have to take? And, um, the young lady came out afterwards and said, you know, she said, I'm a vegan. And she said, so is my husband. And she said, the reason we opted for this lifestyle was largely because we did not want there to be suffering or pain to animals. Understandable. And I said, totally understandable. And I said, the fact that you can both, she was a very healthy looking person. I said, the fact that you obviously have figured out how to do this as a strict vegan, you know, obviously you worked hard because that's not that easy to do. You know, you have to know your stuff to, to right. do this. Yep. But she said, I never thought about the fact that my food too has to come from somewhere and it takes land. And there's one thing about wildlife, you know, if you have land, you can, you can have wildlife. Right. If you don't have land, you cannot. And so the hope is to get people to think if they are out of moral persuasion and ethical principle deciding that hunting is a bad thing and that their alternative is better for the world, that maybe they can see that there is another way of looking at this issue. We all need a varied diet. And part of that diet, we know, is you know a quick run to the protein amino acid, essential amino acid store, is to eat meat. That's well documented. Um, and so I'm hoping that by saying, look, here is an activity that is legal, that has no environmental degradation uh, associated with it, no impact. It is something that people have to train to be able to do. It gives them experience and recreation in the outdoors. It provides a healthy diet. It also stirs many of them to become activists for the conservation of wildlife. Right. It protects wild land. It protects wild rivers. It it encourages private landowners to do the right thing for the landscapes, and it and funds here, and it funds conservation and it and it it helps build rural economies, which are notoriously difficult for states, uh, you know, state institutions to provide for. It does all of those kinds of. It builds communities. It it, it involves food sharing. It reaches out to the to the disadvantaged by providing food for the homeless and for, for people who are disadvantaged in society. It does all of those things, and it involves the harvest of animals that live free and wild. And what is your alternative? <laughs> that, that, that's the great question to ask. Yeah. What is your alternative? And, you know, it's not about um, trying to convince you uh, that hunting is something you should do. It's 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 about asking you to think about what's best for the earth, and and what's best for wildlife. I mean, that's what drives me. And maybe for people who are not interested in that, they won't be interested in my arguments. But fortunately, just like these little children I refer to who will come into the classroom, most people do care at some level. You know this. Uh, this incident that we see today about the killing of this lion in, in Zimbabwe, I mean, it, 
you know the firestorm that has been kicked up uh, over this incident. Correct. We don't know the full details of it yet, so it's improper to say what really what really happened there. But the but what we can say is the death of this animal so far away, so far away, thousands of miles away, so distant from our reality. As we go to the bank or to the local coffee shop or pick up our children after school, it. It, it's like an incendiary device on the human conscious. And whether people are hunters or not hunters, that's not the dividing line here, is it? Lots of people are wondering what really did happen here and was this an improper you know, right. the taking of an animal. The point is that the animal, this, this lion that was living in this protected space, uh, that no one knew about except the people in that area and the visitors who went to that park. But no one here in the United States of America, no one here in Bozeman, Montana, no one in Newfoundland where I am from ever knew or heard or realized that this lion lived. But his death is an important issue. It will impact all of us. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... And, and this is the great hope for us, of course, um, that if we tap into this in the right way, uh, we can mobilize the citizenry of the world to do the right things for wildlife. And we have proven, and this study will further emphasize, that if we put in place the right institutions, the right systems of governance, uh, the right laws and policies and we invest in the science that we can, even in the 21st century, see just as we had 100 years ago or 200 years ago, a landscape that can produce for us a eternally renewable source of nutrition, um, as well as an <laughs> unending source of inspiration and joy. Um, and all we have to do is to make sure that we don't collectively uh, make decisions that destroy that, that limit that unnecessarily, that you know diminishes that. When we have the capacity and have demonstrated in this country and in Canada that for over a hundred years. We can not only do this, but we can rescue wildlife at the same time. We can build their populations up. We can harvest millions and millions and millions and millions of them every single year, and we can have them reappear again. No wonder that you know Native Americans thought the buffalo originally came out of the ground. Yeah, and they, that they did. All wildlife does. Yeah, come out of the ground, and um, you know, and our our, our chance is that. People do love animals, and the hunting community needs to get over itself with regard to some really significant issues. Being afraid to say that you love the animals that you hunt, and I don't mean that just as a term, but I mean loving them sufficiently that, like people around you, you really believe that it's your responsibility to keep them around. Right. Um, and we shouldn't be the least bit afraid of that. But I talk to hunters about this, and some of them will say, well, then people are going to say, well, how can you kill them? Well, for goodness sakes, this is the, this is the reality of life. Right. You know, ask the lion. 
<laughs> you know, uh, how he feels about the Impala. Yeah. You know, it's, we all have, things have to die. The one unending truth is that life depends on death. Exactly. There's no... Undeniable. There's no way of escaping it. We can satisfy ourselves by eating peas, or we can satisfy ourselves by eating scallops, or we can satisfy ourselves by eating, you know, moose. Um, the definition of the hunt is another thing that we need to work on. Um, in my view, all world fisheries are hunts. What's the difference? But yet people can feel no problem with going into a restaurant and ordering codfish or halibut or salmon or whatever, lobsters. Um, but if we somehow talk about people who hunt a single animal, that is distinctly different. Well, I have news for people. Fish are sentient creatures too. Yes. They move, they swim, they breed, they mate. In some cases, they even protect their young, carry the eggs around in their mouths. They do all kinds of fascinating things that we don't do. Uh, and they feel death. And when they're taken up out of the depths and, you know, the pressure changes, they experience pain. I'm sorry, they do. Right. Um, and so, you know, we have to break down those boundaries to the discussion. And that's going to take courage. The hunting community has to be prepared to get into these frontal discussions and debates because we have a completely logical, valid position to take. And if we combine that with a commitment to the conservation of nature that is demonstrable, that cannot be denied, that we can also prove, then we will be able to maintain this tradition and, in my view, we may well be able to encourage more people to enter this tradition. I had somebody recently tell me that he thought that this study that we were just talking about, the Wild Harvest Initiative, is probably going to prove to be one of the greatest opportunities for hunter retention and recruitment. Even though that's not specifically what it was designed for, it is mostly designed to get people to care about wildlife and wildland, but also to demonstrate the value of hunting. But I think he's probably right. I, I believe it, it, it's a great opportunity because I look at, and I'm looking at Giannis when I say this, because you guys produce the Meat Eater Show. How many people come to the Meat Eater Show because of their interest in food? Most. Most, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of whom were not hunters to start with. Is that, am I... I don't know if I'm making that up, but it's hard to gauge that, but, you know. But but I I look at the success you have because your focus is on hunting or, or on uh, food, if, with the context of hunting. For me, it's the context of hunting as it pertains to conservation and the hunt. And I look at what you're talking about there, Shane. In, in this time that we live, where food quality, where my food comes from, food supply, as you've called it, I think is a high priority issue for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. they, they've come to the realization that what I put in my body makes a difference. Yeah. And taking, it's almost like full circle to me as I, as I listen to you explain this, you're taking the arguments that we as hunters kind of wrestle with and we try to avoid and we maybe paint ourselves in corners at times. Because we don't want to talk about, we do this 
at its basic level for food. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about hunting as food and healthy landscapes, there's not a lot of dots you need to connect to non-hunters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's as that, we're talking maybe <laughs> two dots we're connecting yes. here. It's yeah. and it's relevant to everybody on the planet. It is, uh, and it's going to become more relevant, right? As as our resources get more scarce and our population grows and grows. The relevance of that discussion is, I, I would agree with whoever told you this, that this is a great opportunity for hunters to present to the world, this is why we do it. And hopefully recruit and retain more who believe that hunting at its basic level is is food. Yes, and I think... Yeah, as importantly, non-hunters, but that are proponents of hunting which I think is like we have to grow that demographic as much as we have to grow new hunters. We just have to have non-hunters, but that are, you know, proponents of hunting. I think that's absolutely true as well. I mean, you know, we have this enormous support in society currently, but, you know, we cannot take it for granted and we cannot expect that it will always last. I mean, I sometimes ask myself the question, why should 80% of Americans support an activity that only 8% or, you know, the number varies depending on how you calculate it, who engage in this activity and, and what the activity in, involves is the conscious, willful decision to go out and take the life of a sentient, beautiful creature. Why is it that 80% of the people in the country should support that? And I think part of the answer to that question is that, you know, even the generations of people who don't hunt and who no longer have a direct connection with it today, they still have in their family history and their family memory you know, heirlooms, an old shotgun, a black and white photograph on the mantelpiece of Uncle Jack who used to have a farm and I used to go there as a little girl and he used to hunt ducks with a dog I loved. You know, we still have that kind of narrative connection. Uh, I'm not necessarily expecting that the support will stay without effort on our part. In other words, I think it's, I think it's there now and I think it's critical that we have it um, and, you know, the way politics works in our countries, you don't have to have that support fall, you know, to disappear. You just have to have it fall at some level right. before suddenly the decisions get much more complicated. And I do believe that, um, you know, um, we we should really strive as, as hunters uh, individually. We should really strive... Uh, to increase that radius of contact with the meat. I mean, we give it to our friends and family, of course, and then we give it to distant people, if you will, disadvantaged people who we don't necessarily know personally. But many of us have neighbors that we might never have thought to. We don't know them well, and we just never thought to offer them this. Um, But I think all human beings appreciate an act of generosity, and uh, some might say, oh, I can't eat that, you know, I, I don't like hunting or something. But I, I suspect there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't say that at all. Um, and, you know, that's a fascinating thing, too. Um, I'm sure it's the same here in Bozeman as it is in Newfoundland, you know. fellow goes out and he, sh- he shoots his moose. He comes back with all that meat. And the first thing he does is sits down and decide and roast for Uncle Jack and, uh, you know, <laughs> some stewing meat for so-and-so and, you know, some ground meat for so-and-so. And, you know, you send someone off with it, some young 
human being, some small human being, a child or whatever, and they go up and they deliver this, and you know the people are all delighted to get it. But just turn it around and think how absurd it would seem if you sat down at your dinner table one evening and said, now I think I'll go up to the grocery store and I'll buy a roast of beef and we'll take that up to Uncle Jack. <laughs> it would sound completely absurd. I mean, when he opened the door, he said, you know, it would be, it would, first of all, he, he might think it's insulting to him. Um, um, but we just wouldn't do it. Right. Why? Meat? Meat? What's the difference? Right. I never but thought of we that. we see it completely differently. It's totally different because it's wild, because we took it, because it's special, um, for all those reasons. And yet, we just would never, ever, ever do the other thing. <laughs> we don't so think... True. We never think about these things, but you know, you look at it and you 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 wonder why. Even even in places where maybe hunting is not a big deal, it's the same thing. I mean, there's lots of people even in Newfoundland who who, who don't necessarily hunt themselves. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I, a, a pilot that I flew with for many 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 years, I still do. Um, I spent an enormous amount of time together capturing wildlife and doing things and um, he's a keen hunter and fisherman his father was in an old age home he became uh, you know, his mom died and his dad became a little bit uh, wasn't that healthy and he was in a an old age home but he was he was healthy enough because he would always say to to Baxter his, his son you know when are you going to bring me in some moose <laughs> because of course when he'd get the moose He'd be the big hero in the old age. Oh. <laughs> They'd yeah. cook it in the kitchen, and of course, that's Mr. Slade who gave us this big piece of moose. And of course, you know, the elderly ladies and everybody else would come around, you know, yeah. and he'd be, the, he'd be the big hero. Yet nobody was ever going to bring him a, a roast of pork, and he was never going to go to the kitchen. And if he did, they'd think he was insane. Yeah. But everybody in that chain, him, the staff at the home, the people in the kitchen, the people who had the dinner, they all saw that as natural. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Why? Yeah. Now that you point that out, I, I, I'm the same way. Of course. Um, every year we go and shoot two white-tailed does for some people we know who yeah. who they, just infirmity makes it impossible for them to hunt anymore. and. We process it and we bring it to them, and it's it creates this special, you know, couple times a year bond of yeah. here it is. But I would never think of doing that, of going down not. and buying some chickens or a turkey or something, and say, "Oh, let me share this with you." No. So these things are all, all of these things we're discussing point out or point to what is the essential thing for hunting. Um, it's not whether it's controversial. It's whether it's relevant. And these are the things that make it relevant. These are the things that we can point to to say this is not a sideshow. It's not an anachronism. It is not something that has outlived its time. It is not something that is cruel. It is not frivolous. It is none of those things. 
It is exactly the opposite of all of those things. It's about sharing. It's about keeping wildlife with us. It's about being generous. Um, it's about taking responsibility for your own food. It's about living well, you know, staying healthy. It's about all kinds of things that are incredibly relevant to people. Yet, how seldom do we share those kinds of stories? I mean, if you look at the bulk of the information that we share on hunting, the communication that we have, we have a small minority that are trying to share these ideas, and we have a huge majority of information that is you know, coming at the issue in different directions. But the future of hunting, the future of hunting is not guaranteed to anyone. And the future of hunting relies on whether it has merit and whether it is relevant and whether it has benefits. And we have such a strong story to tell if we simply sat down, be a little bit thoughtful, you know, score these things and begin to quietly explain to people who have difficulties with this um, that, you know, here are some of the facts. Just consider them. But if you don't want it, if you don't want healthy meat, if you don't want to work for wildlife, if you don't want to protect land, if you don't want to do those things, well, that's okay, too. That's your decision. And you're, you're exactly right. We have such a compelling story, and we do such a poor job of telling it. I, and as someone who is in the cadre of people telling the hunting story, I I hope I'm trying to do my best for for what's best for hunting. And some may say Newberg, you're full of crap. You, you're you're the worst thing that ever happened to hunting. Um, but it, and this will be a, another topic for another day, Shane, because we could really spend a lot of time on this. But uh, I, I am concerned that we as hunters have taken the greatest story never told. And we've turned it into almost a comic book at times in, in the way we communicate our story at times. But I'm, I'm going to ask you this. Um, we're going to get close to wrapping up here because I know you're in high demand and the time you've given us here is is uh, just greatly appreciated. Um, your Wild Harvest Initiative, is this something people can find out about or is it soon to be released i've read a couple press releases yeah. about it is is there a place people can go to to find out more about it yes if they just go to my website uh, conservation visions is my the organization i found it or they just want to drop me a line which is shane at conservationvisions.com they can certainly get information about this there is a fair amount of pickup uh, over it already and there'll be a series of additional press releases which will uh, be coming out, and uh, there's a series of articles now being written uh, um, uh, about this. I write regularly for Sports Afield and Mountain Hunter and Game Trails and a variety of other um, outlets anyway, and so the articles from my perspective will be getting in there. But there are field editors with some of the uh, other large publications that are already contemplating doing articles on this, and uh, uh, we have a communication strategy that we're developing, um, which um, we intend to uh, put in motion and uh, move this discussion beyond uh, the hunting literature, in quotation marks, and into the broader 
you know, domain of society and discussion. Um, I want to see it in in uh, food magazines. I want to see it in uh, in uh, magazines that deal with health and lifestyle and things of this nature. Um, places where I think there'd be a natural affinity for this story and where people would be, you know, would be interested in this. Um, we um, um, we have done. Um, a poor job of representing hunting, I believe, at least in the last 25 years or so. Um, but I do see some encouraging signs that we're starting to move in the right direction. Some of the new television efforts, some of the new film efforts that are taking place, uh, I think these things are, are very positive. And I also think that they're, despite what some others feel, my personal view is that we have a public conscience right now that can be pretty accepting and supportive of these ideas. I agree. And I think we should move on that. And But I think, again, our ultimate objective should be that, you know, by doing so, by telling our story, that our ultimate objective is to keep the wild others with us. And, you know, no matter what side of the hunting debate you are on, Nobody disagrees with the principle of working to keep wildlife. Right. That's the what a great, great closing thought. That's that. No, you're right. That that is part of who. At least when I think of America and, and Canada, wildlife and wild places are a priority to us. Mm. Um, and and I don't care if you hunt or don't hunt. Even if you're an anti-hunter, if your core values are sustainable, productive, robust landscapes that can support wildlife, hey, that's yeah, that that's part of what I hope all citizens would would add. Um, so, folks, Shane's website www.conservationvisions with an S dot com. Look for Wild Harvest Initiative. Um, and we'll have this stuff on our website. You can go to randynewberg.com or hunttalk.com, and we'll have all that stuff out there for you. We'll, we'll do a, a piece on Hunt Talk that talks about uh, this podcast, gives all of Shane's uh, information and links. And uh, you got any thoughts, Giannis? I mean, we've, we've holy moly, we've do come. I ever? <laughs> yeah, you, you want to close no, it? Or? No, no, I don't. It's it's all too much. Or, or, or. I do have if one final question, Shane. If you can maybe answer it briefly, is you, I heard you say that's wild. Not my, that's not my strong suit. I, I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I will though. Seriously, um, uh, you use the term wild others. Is, is there a did that start somewhere? Like I don't hear other people really th- using that often. Wild others, you know, in reference to wildlife, is where did you pick that up? Well, I was using um, terms even as a boy. Um, uh, I used to refer to them as my friends, um, and um, uh, I pretty much think of that was true at that time. Um, uh, and I've used other terms in the past. Paul Shepard, the great writer about deep issues, about nature and so on. Uh, I think Paul used that term. I don't know if he 
I don't know if anyone has ever codified the term as such. I think what lies at the root of our problems with the natural world is that at some level, uh, consciously, subconsciously, part of both, whatever, we still struggle with what those great artists of the past struggled with when they created that cave art. We know we're the same, but we know we're different. And um, the problems don't arise from that part of our awareness that says we're the same. We get into problems when we start to emphasize that we know we're different. I'd like to subsume that part of us uh, as much as I possibly can. And therefore, I think that term helps. We are no longer the wild. Um, We live it sometimes. But we are no longer the wild. But the others are still out there. And they, they take many forms. And they... They impinge on our lives every second of every day. Tomorrow, if you do some shopping in Bozeman, I, can, I haven't even been in any place here. I can guarantee you that you can go into almost any store on Main Street or whatever your main thoroughfare is called, and you will find animal imagery. It may be on a shirt. It may be on a vase. It may be on a napkin. It may be in a painting. It may be on a, 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 an emblem, a tag, on a pair of shoes or boots. It, may, it is absolutely inescapable, and I'm almost convinced it's growing. I, I agree. It's, it's incredible. And so I try to constantly make the point. They don't do podcasts, no. But at almost every other level, they're extraordinarily similar to us. Anyone, hunter or otherwise, who wishes to argue that they don't have intelligence, that they don't have emotions, that they don't feel, that they can't love, uh, as far as I'm concerned, they know nothing about these wild creatures. Our pets show it to us all the time. And who are they but just... <laughs> Domesticated wild what, animals. Yeah. That's what they are. And all of these capacities are in them. And as I said, I think when we think that way, it's natural to think about stewardship and you know conservation and that we share the planet, that they are important. You know, a sea, an ocean without fish, what... <laughs> What benefit is that? A mountain, you know, without rams, an alpine meadow without elk, a stream without the flash of black backs and silver sides, you know, canopies that have no birds singing. I mean, what are these things? And so I constantly search for ways to casually um, influence people's thought processes. And I think that term is a... you know, it's one that works. You picked up on it. I mean, it's, uh, there probably are other terms we could use, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know quite what else to call them, I guess. Um, you know, it's, uh, 
one gets would get strange reactions if as uh, a man you call them your friends mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and if i said my wild friends some people who know me would be thinking about other people i know rather <laughs> so uh, no i i I, re- I really like it and i think for me it's i try to always when i'm professing you know my love for hunting it's about how it makes me a part of that community and that I understand that I'm a part of their community as well as that those wild others are a part of my community and it's really all one. And then it all comes back to the circle of life and, you know, we can go on and on here, but um, I think hopefully with what you're, that work that you're doing, more people will say, you know what, I'm part of this larger thing. You know, yeah. we're not separate. We're not We separate. are, yeah. you know, the same. And ultimately, we will learn that lesson, of course. Right, yeah. one way or another. <laughs> yeah. That's for uh, sure. I'd like it to be a peaceful, uh, rational, joyous journey rather than the alternative. Yeah. yeah. Well, Shane, I, like I said, I can't thank you enough. I appreciate all you've done to raise the, the consciousness of hunters and the consciousness of, of people who maybe don't hunt. To think about these things in, in the way that you've written, that you've 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 many times presented, and uh, I know you're a very busy man, but uh, hopefully someday we'll get a chance to get together again, and I can uh, go over the rest of these topics I had written <laughs> down here. Um, if, if people criticized me. Uh, not criticized, but just said, Randy, you jump around, you try to cover too many topics in a podcast, so. I only crossed off three topics of the eight I had written down here. So I don't know if that means I'm going to have to go to Newfoundland or otherwise find you. But uh, thanks thanks so much, Shane. Greatly appreciated. Wonderful information. For those of you listening, do yourself a favor. Go Google some of Shane Mahoney's stuff. Watch it. Listen to it. Read it. I can guarantee you that of all the people that we're going to have on this podcast, Shane's work will will be right there with anybody's as far as giving you some new thoughts and some new ideas about hunting. So thanks for listening. Giannis, what do we got? One other quick thing. If there's, uh, I've read some stuff in different magazines of yours, but if there was one piece of literature, book, whatever, that you would recommend that's approachable to all hunters that you say, yeah, this would be a good way to get into some Shane Mahoney Content, what, can you recommend something? A single book that might... Uh, yeah. Oh, I don't know if I could recommend a single book. I would say if um, somebody wanted to um, begin to understand how I feel, um, a strange place to start, but probably a very good place to start, is the latest book that... Uh, well, not the latest, but one of the more recent books that's been written on cave art which is called The Mind in the Cave. And um, it's a little a little dense, but it has remarkable uh, insights as to why human beings 40,000 years ago would have done such things. And I think as good as anything I've ever read, even though it's, it's not the purpose of the book, it's as good as anything I've ever read to sort of enlighten our minds about how Deeply, these wild others have affected us even that far back in time when we had to kill them to live. And still, we had to go through this journey with them. It's uh, 
you know, it's a it's a very very powerful place to start. But there's a lot of literature um, out there, and you know, this country has thrown up a lot of people who did tremendous things for wildlife. And we tend to remember, you know, the Teddy Roosevelt's or the Aldo Leopold's or people like this. We need modern icons of that stature, frankly, to, to, to keep our movement alive. But George Bird Grinnell, uh, who co-founded the Boone and Crockett Club, who was, you know, so responsible for the Migratory Bird and Convention Act, editor of Forest and Stream, which was the forerunner of Field and Stream for 30-odd years, um, fantastic geologist, a uh, uh, man who, you know, for 40 years in a row went and lived with the Plains Indians every summer. Um, man, you know, just read about him. I mean, it's incredible. You think you think any of us are doing something for, for wildlife. Well, you know, we just got to stay back in the shadows from George Bird Grinnell. And uh, he's a... He's a, he's a He's just a—he's just an absolute hero, um, and uh, even before him, a man by the name of George Perkins March, who wrote a book in the 1830s called *Man and Nature*, which you can still buy today. And if anybody is familiar with Jared Diamond's work, um, read what George Perkins March wrote in the 1830s, 1840s. Uh, American genius, polymath, um, uh, and his understanding of the man, nature, civilization uh, kind of connection. And you can still buy this book. Um, and Gifford Pinchot, the first head of the U.S. Forest Service, on his 21st birthday, that was the gift his parents gave to him. Wow. Yeah. And that book is amazing. You won't believe what that man was saying. <laughs> In the 1830s, 1840s. Well, we're, we're, we're going to list those out on hunttalk.com. We're going to list all of this because we have a lot of people who want to consume this stuff. And if we can find a place to get it to them, that's always helpful. And uh, So can I wrap it up now, Giannis? You can. Have at it. All right. Shane, thanks so much. Enjoy your stay in Bozeman. Folks, thanks for listening. Randy Newberg, unfiltered, you heard it here, and you will hear it again in two weeks. Thank you.